So two notable ones linked to those mega trends I just mentioned were uh, livestock and horticulture. Um, and so we try to better understand, um, you know, who has the distribution of market power in those value chains. Um, what is their position on different uh, policy issues and what has been some of the, the binding constraints to, to getting traction on those policy issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chakula podcast. The Chakula podcast is a podcast of the Root to Food Initiative. And on this podcast, we delve into critical issues surrounding our food and farming systems in Kenya and beyond. In today's discussion, we'll be talking about critical issues that shape our agri-food systems around the globe, specifically focusing on the political economy of food in Kenya and also beyond unpacking the challenges, opportunities in transforming agri-food systems. Our focus will be guided by the recently published source book by IFPRI, which is International Food Policy Research Institute, that's IFPRI. They launched a political economy and policy analysis source book, which is a comprehensive guide to understanding and navigating the complex landscape of policy, economics, and and development in the realm of food, land, and water. I know this sounds heavy, but I really hope our two guests today will be able to break it down and ensure that our kawaida monainshi, someone who who's not an expert in this field understands more on what political economy of food is all about. So I'll hand over to Jonathan and Danielle who work with SIAT and also IFPRI to introduce themselves and what they do and who they are. Thank you. Or maybe I can start. Um, so my name is Jonathan Mokshel. I'm an agricultural and food policy economist by training, I'm working at the Alliance Biodiversity SIAT and also the political economy lead uh, for the CG initiative on national policies and strategies. And um, as part of the CG initiative on national policies and strategies, uh, which co-creates demand-driven policy solutions with national institutions and also aiming at supporting countries uh, to transform food, land and water systems um, within the development um, space but also to ensure a sustainable future uh, for all. And we're working around um, eight different countries. Kenya is one of them, um, Nigeria, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Egypt, Laos, and India, and Colombia are also some other countries in which uh, we're working. At Alliance Biodiversity Seat, um, our work mainly focuses on food and agricultural systems um, to transform food systems um, into a more sustainable efficient and inclusive one, um, using evidence-based research solutions and also co-creation of knowledge. And some of the topics um, that we focus on are climate action, um, food environment, uh, multifunctional landscapes, agrobiodiversity, gender and digital inclusion. And we are part of the CG system, uh, which Daniel mentioned earlier on, which is a global partnership uh, for food, land, and water. And uh, both IFRI and Alliance Biodiversity Seattle are part of this uh, global partnership. Um, so looking forward to contributing to this discussion and over to you, Daniel. Thanks, Jonathan, and thanks, Feli, for the invitation to be part of this uh, podcast today. Uh, my name is Danielle Resnick. I'm a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, or IFPRI. 
Um, we are headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have offices in over a dozen countries, uh, mostly in Africa, but also in Asia, um, including an office in, in Kenya. Um, IFPRI is uh, almost a 50-year-old institution. Um, it's part of the, the CGIAR uh, consortium of agricultural research institutes. It is a more social science-based institute. We do a lot of work on uh, food transformation, um, of course, agriculture, nutrition policy, environmental issues, uh, social protection issues, um, and increasingly also looking at urban food system uh, challenges. I'm a political scientist by training. Um, I do a lot of work on political economy of, of policy process research, uh, whether in the food, uh, nutrition, or environmental domains. So thanks again for the invitation and looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, thank you so much and welcome to the show once again. It's quite interesting to have at least the both of you with two different, in as much as yes, you work on food and food policy, it's quite interesting to have someone working on the political aspect and also someone who's working on the agricultural aspect. So basically, just to start off our conversation, just a few things that I would mention before we start is the fact that agricultural sector remains a remains critically important, specifically in Kenya, constituting 65% of the country's exports, accounting for half of the GDP with 26% directly and another 25% indirectly and 60% of employment. So, and also improved agricultural growth in recent years, especially responsible for a decline in the rural poverty rate from 50 to 40 percent between 2006 and 2016. And I think also just to start off, it's the fact that political economy is the elephant in the room and definitely it plays a major role in policy decisions related to agricultural growth and transformation and at the moment we see that our agri-food systems are facing unprecedented challenges this is this is information from the paper source book and it's accessibility by factors such as covid-19 pandemic civil conflicts and of course climate change and of course there are also other underlying factors that have that also affect our or basically the other underlying structural causes of food food insecurity so these challenges go beyond the immediate need for technological solutions they demand and an understanding of the political econo political and economic drivers that shape our food and farming systems so daniel and jonathan could you just share with our listeners some context on what political economy is and policy analysis and why is it needed in layman's language, if that's possible. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe I can uh, start off on that. Um, so political economy is generally thinking more intentionally about, you know, who's supporting policy reforms and who might be opposing them. Um, so we think about what are the different costs and benefits of policy instruments that we need to to make our our food systems more sustainable, um, you know, and who who will be the winners and potential losers from those different reforms, um, and then who has the voice to really influence decision making. So you know, do the potential losers of reforms are they stronger than the potential winners? And those different factors, the costs and benefits, the winners and losers, and, and who has voice, um, you know, is really reflective of um, interests, interest group dynamics. Um, are we motivated more by um, material interest um, in terms of the price of food or 
uh, if you think of food industries, are they more motivated by profit or uh, or by social uh, sustainability objectives? Um, besides interest, we think about ideas, you know, which values and ideas that are important to us. It may not be about agricultural productivity. It may be more about, uh, you know, s- sustainability is more important, even if it doesn't always lead to the highest agricultural yields. Um, or we think about food self-sufficiency. Some governments um, are really committed to ensuring um, that their countries have enough food, um, even if that may have negative implications for their trade policy in terms of putting up uh, trade barriers. Um, and so besides interests and ideas, we also think about institutions and how uh, different types of institutions structure who has voice in the policy process. Uh, these can be farmers institutions, they can be biz- business lobbies, they can be uh, explicitly political institutions, you know, how different types of political systems, uh, democracies versus more closed political systems or presidential versus more parliamentary systems influence the space for policy discussion. And so that's some of the factors we think about when we're talking about political economy. um, And those can also influence the broader uh, policy process um, where we think about even a broader set of variables that are important, including windows of opportunity um, you know, that lead for, uh, you know, change, uh, change drivers to, to get their voice in the system. So you can think about a crisis can sometimes be a window of opportunity. A change in political, uh, administration can offer a window of opportunity. Um, and we also think about who could be policy champions who can help advance, um, the causes of, of a sustainable food systems transformation, for instance. And then finally, thinking about implementation capacities. Does the public sector, does the private sector um, have sufficient capacity to maybe advance some of the reforms that we would like to see on the ground for more sustainable food systems? Thank you. That's Um, well broken down. Yes, over to you, Jonathan. Yeah, um, so kind of in addition to what Daniel just mentioned and also during the introduction, you emphasize we have uh, different backgrounds, but we kind of all bring in that different perspective or lens to conducting political economy analysis of food systems. And uh, based on that, um, I mean, in, in the academic world, um, in terms of um, a broader definition, then that's one of the reasons why you have different backgrounds or different people um, contributing or working within the political economy field. So you might also see this as, um, an interdisciplinary branch of um, social science, um, which brings together political economy, uh, political science, um, economics, sociology, anthropology, and really focusing on how um, to make this as an interdisciplinary branch, but also looking at the interrelationships um, between um, politics, um, economics, political and economic systems and also examining how um, individuals, um, private sector, public sector, government, uh, public policy um, kind of shifts um, the policies that we have, the policy processes and policy outcomes, and um, how those policy decisions also um, make some winners, others lose and um, how incentives can be used to um, compensate or drive uh, behavior change with regards to policy. So that's kind of um, also on the academic level in terms of how um, our different backgrounds comes together within this interdisciplinary field to look at political economy 
of food systems. Thank you. So I, I like how the both of you have been able to break to break it down. So it's clear that politics is a crucial component when it comes to our agri food system policy making and strategy formulation. And just to also mention political economy approaches can be traced back. Do you, political ap- approaches to agricultural development can be traced back to the first green revolution in the 1960s and 70s. And my next question will be why is it important? And I know Dan- Daniel mentioned that when you talk about political economy, we look at who has the voice. But why why is it important to always look at it? Well, I mean, we think that it's it's quite important because, um, you know, as you suggested earlier, um, a lot of policy changes can't just be driven by technology alone. Um, and they can't just be driven by economic considerations. Um, you know, often it's important to think about what are the costs and benefits of certain investments to support the agri-food system uh, more broadly. But I think the political economy perspective, what it adds to it is, is seeing, are these different uh, investment scenarios, for instance, are they politically feasible? Given what we know about the constellation of different interest groups on the ground and the different types of implementation capacities, um, as I alluded to earlier, among the, the public and private sector. So it gives a little bit more, uh, we think, kind of a more realistic understanding of what's feasible and what's not, um, and, and helps us really try to uncover, uh, you know, who may be holding back uh, reforms. Sometimes it may not be, uh, you know, among different societal interest groups. Sometimes there may be something happening uh, internally within governments. Sometimes there's different debates among ministries. Uh, you know, about what should be done. And so a political economy lens, you know, tries to better illuminate um, where the different, where, where the binding constraint is in order to push reforms forward that otherwise seem, you know, very practical from a technological or economic standpoint. Thank you, Danielle. Jonathan? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say you have 100 bucks of maize, which you want to distribute in uh, in in one of the let's say Takamega County for example, mm-hmm. um, that hundred bucks of maize that you have, <clears throat> you would want to distribute that um, in the most efficient and effective way so that um, the households that you are interested in will benefit from that um, subsidy program, let's say from the government. And so, just that hundred bucks of maize will not be enough for all the people uh, in the county. So now the question then is who really gets some of the maize and who is out? And that's where the politics and the political economy comes in. The kind of decision making process that guides that sort of distribution, uh, the politics angle. So in this context, whilst we see that the economics, the policies, the um, uh, cost benefit analysis, everything is extremely important. Um, in terms of who really gets what and why and how the person gets it, uh, kind of fundamental questions when it comes to economics. And that the need to combine the two really helps us to better design those policies in a way that will meet the needs of society. And if we want to transition, if we want to provide social protection, if we want to improve the effectiveness of um, government interventions, we really need to understand this um, part of, um, of of the politics with regards to the distribution of, um, of of social protection programs. And 
once we understand that and contextualize that within a specific location and see the drivers, um, the decisions, the coalitions that shape all these decision-making processes and see how that um, can be used or applied in other contexts really helps us to make um, our development interventions uh, most effective. So for me, I think that's one fundamental reason why we really need to bring in the political economy angle um, in all uh, the work we do, and particularly if we want to achieve a more inclusive and sustainable food systems, this is a key or fundamental thing that we need to consider. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Maybe a follow-up question, and I hope it comes out very correctly. I'm just trying to think, maybe for our listeners, yes, you've given a really good example, but in terms of like Kenya, where are we with the new regime, with the new, go- with the new government in Kenya, where are we when you talk about political economy of food. Does that question really make sense? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I think with this new regime and looking at um, the bottom-up um, yeah. economic policy, which the government is aiming at um, bringing up, I think one of the key things is that um, we, we see that as a different form of policy. And with that program, how the government wants to influence um, resource mobilization and how the different actors or constituents uh, tend to either oppose to that policy or uh, subscribe to that policy um, will be important to really see if that program will work or wouldn't work in the context of Kenya. So it kind of also helps us to see what's the reason behind that policy. And with that specific program, would the government be able to achieve the developmental intervention it wants to achieve? And when would the government pull back uh, on such a policy? For example, if we have um, a number of coalitions that are kicking against the policy, or if people start complaining that uh, it's leading to high taxation mm-hmm. or if is increasing, uh, unemployment is increasing, will that kind of influence the government decision to hold back on such um, an economic policy? So all these are kind of drivers that um, once we bring in the political economy lens, we are able to see um, the power dynamics um, that influence implementing such a policy or even holding back on such a policy or reforming uh, the entire policy in a way that's uh, meets the demands of uh, the people. And one thing that also comes out is that um, for in in terms of political economy, um, for a government, one of the top priorities is to provide the kind of services that um, is important for the population. But at the same time, the government is also interested in um, maximizing uh, those benefits in a way that could lead to a re-election. So if there are things that influence or could jeopardize that form of re-election, in some cases, uh, depending on um, the type of democratic system, the government might want to push back. Yeah. And just maybe to also add, Jonathan, and you can just help me here, is that basically from the research that I've been, what I've been reading is that when reading around basically political economy food and some of the policies that are being pushed, I find that specifically even in here in Kenya, specifically they're focusing so much on production and the aspect of affordability is always ignored. Yeah, I think that's a very um, good way of looking at it. And 
um, in, in this case, and if you maximize production or you increase productivity, then what will happen is that um, supply would increase. And one would generally think that once supply increases, um, it should lead to lower prices. And, and in this case, to bring about affordability. But if that is not happening, there are a number of reasons why that might not be happening. And uh, in the context of Kenya, for example, it could be that um, some of, uh, although we've increased productivity, maybe some of the products is leaving uh, Kenya to neighboring countries. And for that reason, um, what is remaining in the domestic market is too low in order to drive down uh, prices. It could also mean that maybe there is likely price fixing um, uh, from, let's say, the different farm organizations in order to maintain the prices. So this, in, in, in this case, you need a government policy instrument to be able to correct, uh, for example, um, to, to, to place um, an export ban on some of the production so that the production will remain in the country or to place um, a price ceiling, for example, so that um, uh, prices of those commodities cannot be sold um, uh, um, higher than a certain price. So this is where you need um, a government policy to come in to be able to correct uh, some of these uh, anomalies that might happen. Yeah, thank you. And I think now we'll just go back to the paper source book that was li- was launched uh, this year. And why specifically did did the team decide to publish or basically why did the team decide to come up with a source book? So um, political economy has been gaining more salience within the, the CGIAR where, where we both, um, our institutions are both part of. Um, but there is a clear recognition that because uh, it encompasses very different disciplines, uh, you know, we're a political scientist and economist, but we also have agronomists within our system. We have sociologists, uh, we have geographers. Uh, everyone was talking about political economy, but uh, not in a consistent way. Mm-hmm. And also we're wanting to, you know, talk about not just food system transformation, but land and water transformation. Um, and so we thought it would be a very useful tool um, to, to bring together the various frameworks that are out there, both around political economy, but around uh policy process making more broadly uh, as, as, you know, a source book uh, for anyone, regardless of their disciplinary background, to turn to and say, okay, if I'm interested, you know, in in how to um, advance, you know, water system reforms, for instance, um, what are some good frameworks that are already out there that could give us some, some leverage on the political economy dynamics? Um, so it was really a way to, um, you know, offer a consolidated source uh, for for both researchers, practitioners, civil society groups um, to refer to when they wanted to to use a political economy lens to better understand uh, a policy issue facing the food, land, or water system. Jonathan, anything to add? No, I think that Daniel said it all, um, and and I, I think one one of the main gaps that I also see is that um, the the policy environment I would say influences every decision, as we kind of mentioned earlier on. Yeah. <laughs> earlier to 
understand or unpack what really happens within that policy environment will mean that development interventions uh, would have success or they, 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 they will be failure. So if we want to deal with all the poly crisis and structural weaknesses and institutional weaknesses we have, uh, then we really need to understand what works where, why and how. And this will be very important in developing uh, development interventions or designing the development interventions. And with this source book, we provide a tool, a ready to use tool, uh, which is very consistent to the food, land and water domains, the first of its kind, and can be used by different actors that Daniel mm-hmm. kind of to really understand how to influence the policy environment uh, for the success of uh, development interventions. Yeah, thank you. And how can the frameworks provided by the source book be applied in real world scenarios? What can we learn from successful interventions and how can we avoid pitfalls that hinder transformative change in agri-food systems? So maybe I will start off with the first um, mm-hmm. part and then that we can continue with the second part of the question with regards to um, the frameworks that we have. So we've kind of um, systematically examined all the potential frameworks that can be categorized under food, land, and water domains. So we have these three domains. And within these three domains, you can also have um, aspects of environment, you can have aspects of climate change, you can have aspects of nutrition. And based on this, uh, we've looked at all the possible frameworks that can be linked to each of these domains and the specific tools uh, that can be used. So with regards to how these frameworks can be used, once you think about a specific policy problem, uh, for example, um, increasing food prices um, mm-hmm. in Kenya or the prevalence of ultra-processed food in Kenya, for example, if you think about that as a policy problem, you can map this to one of the three domains. So this will fall under food and nutrition domain. And based on this domain, we have a set of frameworks. So you can have the Kaleidoscope framework, which was designed by Daniel and other colleagues from IFPRI. We have the Institutional Analysis and Development Framework, the Art Framework. Um, we have the Advocacy Coalition Framework, uh, Narrative Policy Analysis Framework. So any of these frameworks can fit to the specific policy problem. And once we determine this framework, we will be able to see the key elements of the framework. So within the Kaleidoscope, for example, we have 16 to 18 different indicators which we can be used, which can be used to examine um, policy change, policy reform, and the type of indicators, whether if uh, such reform, if these indicators exist, would would we be able to have a reform or a policy change uh, within the context of um, um, ultra-processed food or increasing uh, food prices in Kenya? So based on that, you are able to see exactly which elements of the framework to apply. And we have that kind of spelled out within the the, the source book with uh, specific examples and also the context and the um, analytical tools that you can be used to conduct this analysis. Thank you, Jonathan. Danielle, anything to add? Yeah, so with regards to your the second part of your question, um, you know, what we can learn from successful interventions. 
and avoid pitfalls. Um, you know, I think you know, one of the frameworks that Jonathan alluded to, the kaleidoscope model of policy change, um, you know, highlights some some real um, issues that we need to take into account when we're designing policy reforms. It actually, that particular model um, talks about 16 different variables that are quite key in the policy agenda setting process, the design, adoption, implementation, and uh, evaluation and reform uh, process. And we've applied it to look at issues, you know, that are very key in a place like Kenya, like input subsidy programs, um, also large scale food fortification, which is when, uh, you know, certain vitamins, uh, iron, vitamin A, iodine are added to the food system and trying to understand when when you saw those reforms take off and when you saw um, opposition. And some some key things that emerge is you know one about the um, the importance of having powerful policy policy champions on board. Um, you know if you if you have an opponent uh, to your reforms who are quite politically powerful, you're not going to get much movement um, with the reform. But if you can convince and engage early on um, quite powerful uh, policy champions, that's that's much more instrumental to getting change. Um, another lesson learned uh, is the importance of mobilizing broad coalitions, mm-hmm. um, you know, engaging with, you know, those who may come from very different perspectives, um, but yet may all be aligned in terms of, of the, the policy outcome that you want to see. And so bringing kind of the, the broader the set of actors that you can bring on board, um, the more likely that you can have a, a more uh, successful and sustainable reform uh, option. And then third is, is always being conscious about that implementing capacity. A lot of reforms are adopted without thinking about whether governments have the money to implement them. Yeah. Um, and if they actually have the capacity on the ground. Um, if you think about a place like Kenya, you know, mm-hmm. that has gone through a pretty substantive devolution reform. Yeah. A lot of different agricultural functions are now devolved to the county level including, you know, issues around uh, agricultural and veterinary uh, extent research and extension services. Um, and so if you're going to be doing, you know, reforms that involve those services, you really need to make sure that at the county level um, that your, your staff actually have the capacity to roll out some of those reforms. So that gives you kind of a broad sense, thinking about the the powerful policy champions, the the broad uh, coalitions, and and being thoughtful about implementation capacity. Those are some key um, lessons we've learned from some of the models in the PEPA source book. Yeah, thank you for sharing that in a simpler way. But also, Jonathan mentioned we need to look at what works where and how, and you also mentioned something to do with in- input input subsidy program. So uh, are are they effective the input subsidy program and is agroecology really the answer? Well, um, I could talk about the input subsidies and maybe Jonathan wants to to focus more on on agroecology. Um, Whether, I mean, whether input subsidy programs are effective or not depends on what the original objective was Mm -hmm. of the program. Um, These programs, which have really spread uh, throughout Africa, you you saw a regeneration of input subsidy programs from about 2010 onwards. Um, They've had very different objectives across countries. You know, some are intended to enhance uh, agricultural productivity. Um, Some are intended to be, they're effectively more of a a cash transfer program, in effect. They're effectively kind of a social protection system for the poorest farmers. And so in those circumstances, even if you don't have high agricultural productivity, 
Um, but you're seeing, you know, at least the the incomes of smallholders being protected, you could still judge that as as being effective. I think the the collection of research on this is that uh, one of the problem with uh, input subsidy programs, which um, you know typically include both subsidizing fertilizer and seed, um, is that they are often um, not properly targeted to the the soil composition um, in in particular country. Um, you may you know obviously every country has a diversity of agroecological conditions, and sometimes these programs are very um, standardized, so they're not being well targeted to that variation that you're seeing in the agroecology. Um, and so, you know, some more targeted programs, um, ensuring that they're not promoting kind of monocrop agriculture, that they're not just promoting kind of cereals production um, is, is a real concern. Um, and thinking about, you know, different ways we can bring in technology to, um, to better promote microdosing um, of, of uh, fertilizer, for instance, so that farmers are not overusing fertilizer, that they're using the appropriate amount. And I think that's one of the concerns sometimes with these programs is that they're maybe uh, promoting, uh, you know, a, a use and excess use of fertilizer in particular regions where it's either not um, the appropriate amount, you know, much less could be used or much more is actually needed, or it's not it's not appropriately targeted to the, the underlying agroecological conditions. So. That's kind of a, a broad answer to your question, whether they're effective really depends on the original objectives. Um, but there are some you know, overarching concerns, as I alluded to, about how some of these have been designed uh, thus far. And Jonathan on agroecology, yeah? Yeah. Um, so I would say that um, agroecology is part of the answer. <laughs> and the reason why it's part of the answer is that um, agroecology is not a one-size-fits-all um, solution to the crisis that um, we are having. So in this context, a specific example will be um, agroecology depends on 13 different principles or 10 elements uh, with five um, levels of um, transformation. And this transformation can be um, it can be transformative or incremental. So depending on which country or which region, um, agroecology can be the answer or can be part of the answer or can be the main solution. Um, to put this into context, um, if we take Western Kenya and if we take the Northern region of Ghana, <clears throat> these are two different agroecological zones. So in Western Kenya, um, you might not necessarily need that kind of amount of fertilizer that you need um, and the amount of resource uh, re resource capacity that is there is, is very different from what you have in northern Ghana. So in this context, you really need to see what is the best fit solution for that specific location and that should influence the policy design and program design and implementation. So within agroecology, where um, you have, for example, a principle focusing on reducing um, fertilizer use, 
Um, if you bring that to the Amazon region, that will work. But in Northern Ghana, that will not work. In Western Kenya, that would likely also work. But in the Northern part of Uganda, that wouldn't work. But rather, you might need um, some sort of fertilizer or even more fertilizer because um, the, the, the soil content, um, the soil fertility is not as rich as you might find um, in the Amazon region. And so the solution, the real solution is um, it's about the best fit solution. And that should be a combination of uh, farming pathways. So apart from agroecology, you can have regenerative agriculture, you can have climate smart agriculture, uh, you can have conservation agriculture. So depending on the location, the argument is to have a best fit uh, option, which would be a combination of the strengths of all these different types of farming pathways, uh, including agroecology, in order to be able to design the most effective policy that policy and program that meets the needs of that um, location or specific area. Yeah, Jonathan, just a quick clarification. You have mentioned about conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and climate smart agriculture. Perhaps you could break down what conservation agriculture is, what regenerative agriculture is, and what climate smart agriculture is, and what's the difference between the three of them and also agroecology. Yeah, so th- these are different um, farming pathways, and you might kind of want to look at this on a continuum. Um, if you move from your left-hand side to your right-hand side. Um, On this continuum, uh, on the left-hand side, you might want to call that, for example, um, sustainable agriculture. And then as you move to the right-hand side, you might want to call that sustainable intensification of agriculture. Now, all these four different pathways or farming pathways uh, can fit on this continuum, but um, different position of um, at, at different points. So as you move from the left to the right, uh, sustainable agriculture, agroecology, for example, will fit um, over there under sustainable agriculture. And then as you move more to <clears throat> the right-hand side, you have sustainable intensification. And that extreme end, you can put climate uh, smart agriculture over there. So that's one um, of the main differences in terms of um, this continuum. But looking at it um, from the differences, that can be looked at from what the key practices are for each of the pathways. So under um, under agroecology, the 13 principles, um, some of the key things that we highlight over there, which is different from the other pathways, are uh, uh, we need co-creation of knowledge uh, within agroecology. There is a strong emphasis on um, food sovereignty. There is a strong emphasis on civil society organization participation, uh, farmer um, organization participation. So agroecology essentially um, looks into maximization of ecological practices and limited use of external input use. So maximizing the ecological processes that you find within a location in order to increase productivity and with a strong focus on the bottom down so in this case having farmers taking a leading role having cooperatives and yeah. emphasis on food sovereignty food security so that's agroecology and um in this context it also emphasizes less use of um 
chemicals or agro agrochemicals. On climate smart agriculture, which is extreme, and uh, you don't have emphasis on having um, smallholder agriculture or having um, farmer-based organizations, but it also allows the use of GMOs, for example, and also allows the use of agrochemicals. So that's one of the fundamental difference, and it has a lot of emphasis on climate mitigation and adaptation, uh, including the use of hybrid, hybrid seeds and um, uh, improved seed varieties that's able to adapt to changing climate. Uh, within the middle where you have conservation agriculture um, based on cover cropping, um, and cover cropping and mulching, and also limited tillage. Um, that is a different set of principles. So that will come directly after agroecology. And then the final one uh, on regenerative agriculture, which uh, I would say is the new baby or the block, uh, emphasizes a lot on soil fertility, soil health, uh, improved use of um, chemicals, but that's also a bit much closer to agroecology. Oof, thank you. That's a bit heavy. And coming from a point of view where we champion agroecology as a solution, I'm also really a bit confused on what really looks like the best, best, best approach and the most sustainable and the most inclusive. I guess for me, I'll be very biased and I'll still stick to agroecology. So, yeah. And I think as we wrap up the show, just one last question is what does the future hold for Kenyans, agri-food systems, and how can the insights from the paper source book contribute to a more sustainable and equitable food future? Okay, well, I could start off on yeah. that, uh, Feli. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Kenya, like like many different parts of, of uh, Africa, are facing a variety of different what we call mega trends. Um, you know, one is obviously the impact of climate change and that that's been obvious uh, for the past few seasons and how that's affected particularly the north of Kenya um, and the livelihoods of the pastoralist communities there. Um, another mega trend is, of course, rapid urbanization. Um, Kenya has just, uh, you know, about uh, 27% of its population in urban areas right now, but by 2050, half of the population is expected to be in urban areas. Um, and that's going to create, you know, a big demand um, uh, for improved nutrition in cities. Um, how do you ensure that your urban populations have access to fresh fruits and vegetables um, at affordable prices that are also safe from, from a food safety perspective yeah. um, and don't contribute to, to foodborne uh, diseases. Um, both of these issues we looked at uh, using one of the frameworks um, that's touched on in the PEPA source book. It's called Political Economy, a Value Chains Framework. Uh, we looked at this in Kenya. Um, we were tracing through some different value chains in the country. So two notable ones linked to those megatrends I just mentioned were uh, livestock and horticulture. Um, and so we tried to better understand, um, you know, who has the distribution of market power in those value chains? Um, what is their position on different uh, policy issues and what has been some of the, the binding constraints to, to getting traction on those policy issues. So, for instance, of course, uh, you know, with livestock, um, it's a very valuable chain, value chain in, in Kenya, but the pastoralist community gets very little of that value. Of course, a lot of the power, um, as we uncovered, is very much concentrated amongst the, the traders. 
Yeah. Um, and of course the large scale cattle, uh, cattle owners. Um, so even though, you know, a majority of the domestic, um, uh, beef, for instance, that's consumed in Kenya is coming from pastoralist communities. They're not getting a sizable share of, of returns. Um, and so by kind of using the framework, we can see, you know, who is having the, the, the market power, um, and why things like the livestock marketing bill, which has been on the table for quite some time in Kenya, why that has has been stalling over successive political administrations. Similarly, we looked at looking at horticulture and the importance of that for feeding uh, Kenya cities. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in in the Kenya export horticulture um, subsector on meeting food safety uh, standards for the export market. You know, particularly for the EU, there's not much focus on domestic food safety. Um, and so, you know, highlighting that there's a real lack of civil society demands, uh, consumer groups, um, pushing for, um, domestic food safety, uh, is one of the kind of, you know, binding constraints that we uncovered from using the framework, uh, focused on that particular value chain. So I'll stop with those two examples, but I think they give a little bit of a flavor of how, um, the frame, what, you know, at least one of the frameworks, uh, in the, in the PEPA source book can be applied um, to these issues in Kenya. So um, I think that Daniel kind of nailed it uh, with, with those um, two examples. And um, the minor thing I just want to add is that um, yeah, for Kenya, the policy environment is um, a very, is, is an interesting one and especially looking at um, the transition now to a new regime mm-hmm. and um, the changes that's happening now. So it gives us um, uh, the right time to really be able to use that pepper source book, um, looking at um, some of the key challenges we have in Kenya now with inflation, um, employment, high food prices, taxation, etc. The pepper source book now really gives, gives us those frameworks that we need uh, to be able to generate those uh, key insights uh, in a very rapid way uh, that will be able to inform uh, policy decision, but also uh, response to some of these um, policies um, as they come in a very dy- dynamic way uh, with, with the right insight to support uh, reforms in Kenya. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. The conversation has been very, very insightful and also very, very light. And I hope our listeners will also agree with us that the conversation has been very, very light. So thank you for joining us, Danielle and Jonathan. Do you have any parting shot that you wanted to say during the whole conversation that you've not said that you really want to share with our listeners? Uh, no, just to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today, Philly. Yeah, no, same here. Thanks. I also enjoyed the conversation and hoping that uh, our listeners will benefit from it, but also looking forward to applying the purpose of book in Kenya. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Chakula podcast. We hope the exploration of the political economy of food in Kenya and beyond and also just looking at the paper source book has provided valuable insights. Remember to subscribe for future episodes and as always, let's keep the conversation going to create a more resilient and inclusive food future. I'm your host, Felistas Molia. Thank you.